The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. I'm joined today by the Reverend Marcus Walker, rector of St Bartholomew the Great in the City of London, who is going to basically take me through all sorts of confusing events that have been happening in the Church of England recently. I've taken my eye off the ball a bit. I've been so distracted by the wreckage of this pontificate There was a time, a very long time ago, when I was religious affairs correspondent of the Daily Telegraph and I covered the Church of England, particularly the argument over women priests, all the time. And I could name every single diocesan bishop. And now I think I could name about three, maybe four, five. I'm just aware, above all, of the endless political interventions by the Archbishop of Canterbury. Recent controversies involving, for example, Paula Vennell's post office chief who was nearly appointed Bishop of London, arguments about safeguarding, arguments about homosexuality. Some of these are the same controversies that have been ripping apart the Catholic Church. It doesn't seem to be a very happy community. Perhaps there's no such thing as a mainstream denomination which is a happy community these days. But Marcus, could you just give me a sort of tour d'horizon of the Church of England in 2024? Well... Part of the difficulty in doing that is in pretending that there is one Church of England right now. Difficulty that we have is that actually we have become so fractured that a lot of things are happening in silos that are not affecting other groups of the Church of England. So there's a, there's a sadness in that, and that, that, that those silos seem to be growing within the C of E. However, I suppose you can draw out some major themes right now. Uh, Underlying almost everything is the realisation that the Church of England's numbers are going down. With those numbers come decreasing amounts of giving that parishioners are able to to, to give uh, money-wise, decreasing amounts of volunteering time that people are able to give, and essentially the, the fear that the whole show is going to is going to come to a stop. A lot of the, uh, the, the, the battles that are going on are actually different people trying to make sure that there is a Church of England in 40, 50 years' time. The big fights at the moment are inevitably on sex. General Synod and the House of Bishops have been trying to work out where the Church of England might go with the questions of blessing same-sex unions or marrying same-sex couples. Both of those have been on the table. Um, Underlying a lot of the tensions there are questions as to whether, as to who actually has authority, the House of Bishops on its own, the General Synod, wider, the wider church. Those tensions are also there in questions of how the Church of England is run and how the Church of England is funded. There's been a massive sort of heist of the Church of England's assets, £10.2 billion of the Church Commissioner's monies, 
um, have essentially stopped going to support parish ministry, which is what they have as their statutory purpose as a charity, and instead are going to fund new styles of worship, really fundamentally, to the tune of about 150 to £250 million a year, that if going to their ordinary purposes would actually save an awful lot of parishes and an awful lot of the church. You've got the major problem of how the church has responded to the safeguarding crisis and the sex abuse crises, with the Archbishop's Council sitting in the middle of a complete catastrophe of um, trying to respond to the Independent Safeguarding Commission's advice to the Church of England and seeming every single way they turn to manage to put their foot through every conceivable form of window. Well, perhaps we could just start there because it's such an obvious catastrophe. I think last year the Church of England sacked a panel of experts who were providing independent oversight on how it dealt with abuse. Who were supposed to be independent but discovered they were not as independent as they thought that they were. Well, this panel of experts said that they had found the church to be obstructive and interfering with their work. What was going on? What went wrong? It's really difficult to piece this together, but it appears that the Church of England set up a panel, a, a panel of three to create a structure that would be an independent safeguarding board. One of those three had to resign, leaving two on there, in the course of then trying to appoint a third person to that committee, a real sort of clash developed as to whether this body was or was not independent. And the church basically proved that it was not independent by fairly summarily sacking them. Um, this then led to an absolute meltdown in relationship between the Archbishop's Council that has sort of created itself as a cabinet really, within the church, and an awful lot of survivors' groups um, who feel completely let down and betrayed by the national church, and a quite serious meltdown in credibility for the church's efforts to reform itself in order to be safe for people across the nation. Well, do you think there are lots of cases, lots of scandals have gone uncovered? I mean, it, it's we see at the moment the Vatican desperately trying to cover up some horrific scandals, and it has the advantage of a press corps that's complicit in, in covering up um, anything that implicates Pope Francis, but I won't go on about that. What's the situation in the Church of England? Are we talking about a backlog of scandals? That... No, this isn't dealing with a backlog of scandals. This is dealing with how to relate to, engage with and support financially and pastorally and emotionally and psychologically... Those who's those who have been abused. Why should that be so difficult? That's quite a big question. Why that should be so difficult? I mean, I suppose the fundamental reason is money. How much money is the church willing to pay to those who have been abused by priests or those working for or with or in the church in the past? And to what degree should the church's current safeguarding structures respond to those historic? and probably ongoing, although obviously by their nature we don't know, you know, where they are, safeguarding abuses and, and sexual abuses. So is it right to say that, bearing in mind what you said earlier, the 
Church of England or the Archbishop's Council actually has quite considerable financial resources at its disposal because it takes so yeah. much money from the parishes. So why can't it use that? So the what they're attempting... So the, the, the General Synod will be looking at a um, proposal that's currently being worked through that actually seems quite a good proposal. This is, so this is a whole cycle of work that's going on around the side that is going to essentially... The, the money for paying for historic abuses is likely to come from three sources. Ecclesiastical insurance, provided parishes were in fact insured at the time that things happened. The church commissioners and the parishes themselves, according to their means. Um, that will prove quite controversial because... These will be. There's not going to be a statute of limitations, which means that people currently attending churches may find that they are having to pay financially for abuses by a priest they never knew, who may indeed have been conducting those abuses before they were even born. But that's likely to be where the church ends up. There seems to be a very formidable managerial ethos in the upper reaches of the Church of England, and I could see it beginning to take shape and uh, before Rowan Williams, I think. Uh, I think under George Carey, the Archbishop's Council was set up. And it seems to me as an outsider that there's, there are real structural problems, that there's an imbalance of power, that there's mm. tremendous centralisation in the Church of England that didn't used to be there in my day, covering it as a religious affairs correspondent. And this has caused all sorts of problems and made it difficult to work through various controversies, or even more difficult to work out, work through various controversies, such as, for example, the whole question of how you address the subject of gay blessings. What is Church of England's current policy? It's really difficult to answer that question. So what's the Church of England's current policy about gay blessings? So what's happened is this. So about five, six, seven years ago, there was a vote in General Synod where the recommendations of the Archbishop's Council or the House of Bishops got voted down, which led to a process of trying to allow all the different sides to engage with each other, a gentle shift in the direction of allowing priests to... gay priests to get married and remain priests and allow some form of blessings. It was a relatively minor move, but what happened was that those who were very liberal voted it down, those who were conservative voted it down. So they managed to drop to, to, to collapse the whole thing, which led to an achingly painful process called Living in Love and Faith, which was in or, designed in order to try and get everybody in the same room talking so that we all recognised that the others were Christian and meant well and, and, and all the rest. But, of course, the entire way that it was done was doing things like sticking post-it notes on whiteboards with, you know, single words on them kind of thing. Church of England priests can get, get married, same-sex No, they can get civilly partnered. If they get married, that was an immediate dismissible offence. Are some of them married? Only if they're operating outside of the diocesan structures. So what looks likely to happen now? So what happened then, at the end of the Living in Love and Faith process, the, a series of proposals were made to General Synod, including a wholehearted apology uh, for the way the church had treated LGBTQIA, etc. people, a proposal that there should be standalone services of blessing 
for gay marriages, but not that the church itself would marry people, and that issues in human sexuality, which is a document under which priests are expected both to live and to say that they will and to say that they uh, will abide by it, will be reformed in order to allow priests to be gay priests to get married. There's also an added little amusing subplot, which is that issues in human sexuality are sufficiently old enough that it declares that bisexuals are by their nature promiscuous and as they could find either side attractive, it recommends conversion therapy in order that they could be pointed in the direction of being straight. So you've got the ridiculous thing right now where bishops are standing up in the House of Lords demanding to know why the government have not introduced a ban on conversion therapy whilst they make all priests sign up to a document that demands conversion therapy for, for bisexuals. So they said they would do these, these things and these things passed through General Synod. They then went away, and of course General Synod is a tricameral legislative body. It's got the House of Laity, it's got the House of Clergy, it's got the House of Bishops, and each house has to pass a proposal for it to pass. The House of Bishops has started meeting separately and secretly. It immediately moves into committee, which is its, the vehicle for doing this, so that nobody knows what happens, nobody knows which way anybody voted, nobody knows who says anything. So they've been meeting secretly, and this has been a serious problem during COVID, and it's been a serious problem with quite a lot of things, and now it's become a serious problem, because the House of Bishops, having voted for the proposals in Synod, went away, went forward with the things that had been passed, sent them out to the wider College of Bishops, which isn't the legislative body, it's just all the bishops in the Church of England, that agreed to the changes to discipline and to the introduction of the services for blessing, and then there was a, a meeting just before, I think, the last General Synod when Justin Welby apparently stood up, pulled the rug from under the feet of the people that he'd set up to lead on this and announced, no, we can't do this. I've had private legal opinion that says this wouldn't be legal. We have to go through a totally different process. If there are going to be standalone services, we have, they have to go through every single deanery in the country and then they have to be passed by two-thirds majority in the House of Clergy, the House of Laity, and the House of Bishops, which of course means it will never happen. And we're not, and we need to introduce strict alternative structures, differentiation for um, traditionalist clergy. And until that happens, we're not going to allow there to be changes to issues in human sexuality. So let me just ask, where is the major fault line here? Because on social media, I get the impression that the opposition to these pro-gay measures is being led, unsurprisingly, by evangelicals. And Welby comes yes. from the evangelical constituency. In fact, he was once a member of Holy Trinity Brompton, which I think is involved in opposition to this measure. Is that right? I mean, Anglo-Catholics don't seem yes. to, or traditional Anglo-Catholics don't seem to be a very powerful force in the Church of England these days. Is it the evangelicals? It's mostly the evangelicals. The traditionalist Anglo-Catholics will sign most of the same documents as the evangelicals and they'll put out joint statements and Bishop Martin Warner, the Bishop of Chichester, spoke against introducing uh, gay blessings in the debate in General Synod. But the main thrust of the opposition comes from the evangelical wing and Holy Trinity Brompton, which had stayed absolutely stum on this for years, came out a few months ago in favour of 
firm differentiation. So really setting up a, a sort of complete wall between those who are in favour and those who are against same-sex blessings, which seems to have been the thing that pushed Justin Welby into overturning the previous... Well, getting the House of Bishops to change its position. One can't help being reminded of the current chaos in the Catholic Church over fiducia supplicants and, well, nobody really knows whether the Catholic Church permits gay blessings or not, or if so, what sort of blessing it is, and they seem to have invented a new sort of blessing, and it could hardly be a greater mess. But it doesn't surprise me that the same third rail is electrocuting people in, in both churches. One of the things that does concern me, one of the things that rather disappointed me, is Justin Welby. When he was appointed, I thought, that's just what the Church of England needs. I even thought very briefly, when Francis was appointed, it was what the Catholic Church needed. I couldn't have been more wrong in the case of Francis, and I seem to have been wrong in the case of Welby, who strikes me as a bit of a control freak. I want to mention just very briefly, he supported Paula Vennels, the disgraced post office mm. chief, in her application to be Bishop of London. And given the way he parachuted Dame Sarah Mullally, who I know is your bishop, and I'm not asking you to criticise her, but he did more or less parachute her into London, there seems to be a lot of control freakery going on there. And at a time when the Archbishop of Canterbury spends so much time commenting on secular political issues. I mean, he's spoken in the last 18 months, he's spoken nine times on Rwanda, illegal migration and asylum mm -hmm. law, even got involved in secular legislation and um, annoying an awful lot of people in the process, simply because that's not his main job. Yes, I mean, I, I like... Justin Welby on a personal level. He's always been perfectly, you know, very friendly and personally affable. He, I think, to a certain extent, is a politician monkey. He comes from an intensely political family. I mean, his mother worked for Churchill. I think his, both his... The, 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 the man who brought him up, whose name he bears, but whom we know wasn't his father, was in, that, in the political world, and his actual father was in the political world. He's come from a deeply, deeply yeah. political world, and I think he, he seeped in that. I think that that plays itself out both in his involvement in national politics, which I'm not going to condemn completely, even though I don't agree with it, uh, with all of his politics, because I think you know, the, the unique charism of the Church of England is that it is integrally, it is tied in to the nation-state and the political world, hence having 26 bishops in the House of Lords. The fundamental problem is they all say the same thing and that they all have, they have total commonality of mind and that the... National, you know, the Church of England in the country, all of the polling suggests, is, is fairly, it's kind of Brexity Cameroon. Whereas the Church of England in the, in Parliament, the Church of England in its episcopacy is almost entirely soft to hard left. Indeed, it seems to me that the leadership of the Church of England, and I think this is true of the leadership of the Catholic Church to an extent in this country, represents a certain bureaucratic class. And I think it's no coincidence that, you know, Welby didn't start out as a clergyman. Admittedly, he came from the city rather than from the public sector. But you get people from the public sector like Sarah Mullally, like Paula Venels. Thank goodness she didn't get much further. But nonetheless, there seems to be a sort of merging, not just of the ethos of the bureaucratic secular class in the Church of England, but actually of the personnel as well, I think there's also there's a, there's a an institutional cringe there's a, there's a failure to appreciate 
even to, to, to take seriously the treasures that the church actually has in and of itself, the treasures of theology, the treasures of doctrine and liturgy and the things that build up per priestly and a Christian life, and instead to, to value the mindset and ethos of other institutions. Of course, Paula Venels, in fact, whom I heard the other day, wanted liked to be called Venels, which I thought summed her up rather well. Um, Paula Venels. It's like Hyacinth Bouquet, isn't it? Yes. Um, but she, she, um, she rather sums this up. Oh, look, here's a person who's been, who, who's been senior in something real. In, you know, she's been senior in the post office. Of course we've got to have her. You know, much better than some boring, snoring uh, theologian who can talk about God. We've got somebody who knows how to manage. And I think there's that sort of cringing, kowtowing to other disciplines. When I think, what, in the, church, in the, the episcopacy, there were, what, two bishops who have actually taught at a tertiary level now. Can I suggest that there's a parallel between what's happening in the Catholic Church and the Anglican Church, and actually a surprisingly close parallel, which is that you, the machinery of government has been seized by left-leaning bureaucrats to a, a really alarming extent in Rome, but obviously in the Church of England as well. There is opposition to it coming in the form of a revival, a modest revival, but quite a conspicuous one and involving young people who are interested in traditional worship. We know that it's the case in the Catholic Church that young people overwhelmingly are attracted to the Latin Mass, again, something unthinkable before. And in the Church of England, people are attracted to the worship you offer at St Bartholomew's. And if you could tell me a little bit about how you're trying to create a liturgical revival that can at least mitigate some of the damage done by bad administration? Well, I think it's, it's, it's interesting. It's been, there's been a reality for about two decades that the only two parts of the Church of England that are growing are Holy Trinity, Brompton-style churches and cathedrals, cathedral liturgies, basically, you know, good old-fashioned Evensong. And Evensong was... People had suddenly started noticing about five, six, seven years ago that Evensong was growing, curious, and growing amongst the young... And this was something that I have tried to tap into. And I think that the reason why it is proving popular, not amongst everybody, not amongst all, but, but certainly is proving to popular, is because it anchors a very, very, very fragile generation in something that feels eternal, something that stood the test of time. The young girls and boys coming to St Bart's are people who've grown up post 9 11 grown up post the financial crash, quite often people whose university or immediate post or 20s dominate, you know, had a huge two-year hole in it where they couldn't see anybody as they were locked down. Actually, offering worship that's beautiful, that uses the poetry that undergirds the entire literary tradition of England, is attractive. It takes you out of the tedium of spreadsheets and Zoom and bureaucratic forms and puts you into a wholly different register where suddenly you're encountering God. And at least you don't have a situation where the leadership of the church is actually trying to suppress ancient liturgies. I remember a time, actually, when the Church of England was obsessed with trying to wipe out the Book of Common Prayer. That That was a long time ago now. Now, unfortunately, we have the Vatican trying to wipe out the Tridentine Mass. 
As an Anglican, does that make sense to you? I have to admit, I watched that with bafflement. Because I mean, I am at least, I'm glad that the Church of England does actually appreciate the fact that things like choral evensong can be a fresh expression. And the Archbishop of York came along to our sort of first Thursday of the month, evensong in the city, pitched at young city workers and preached at it uh, in December. The idea that you would see young people finding God in a way that you may not particularly enjoy and think, I must crush this rather than I must work out what it is that's bringing them to the divine, I just find baffling. I just don't get it. I'm so pleased to hear you say that. We're running out of time, but I'm very keen to ask you about Save the Parish because Mm. you believe that it is possible to reinvigorate parishes but you can only do that if somehow the stranglehold of the central machinery is loosened. So if you could just very quickly explain how this, how you hope this could work. Well, what we've discovered since setting up Save the Parish, um, which set up about uh, well, two years ago after a particularly stupid comment by one of the leading evangelists, evangelists and evangelicals, sort of of the National Church, Canon McGinley, who rejoiced that soon the church would be freed from its key limiting factors of buildings, stipends and long costly theological education. And what we realised is that actually the church is doing its best to try and liberate itself from those three things by cutting the money that goes to parishes and liberating parishes of such money as they produce. So a number of things has come clear over the last two years. The first thing is that there is a doom cycle, which is that if you cut priests and cut churches... And if you give priests too many churches to look after, they, the priests have a breakdown and parishioners stop going. And when parishioners stop going, they stop giving and then there's less money and then you start having to cut more priests and they priests have more parishes to look after and it becomes, it becomes this doom spiral that leads to total collapse. The worst thing is that this has been driven deliberately by dioceses. Places like Truro, Wigan and Leicester are actively merging dozens and dozens of parishes, collapsing the number of priests in them, trying to spend that money on all sorts of fresh expressions, trying to get sort of lay ministers instead of ordained ministers. And in each occasion, they found that people are willing, are just going to walk. They're not going to turn up once they've been denuded of their churches and denied their priests when they need them. But the money is there. £10.2 billion of assets that are dedicated, supposed to be dedicated for supporting the parochial ministry in the poorest parts of the country set up by Queen Anne, has, through a little sleight of hand, just a a sneaky little, um, what was it called, miscellaneous provisions measure, had a little line in it allowing the Archbishop's Council to use this money for its purposes, which was justified as just being about administration now is being used to funnel 150 to £250 million a year away from parochial ministry into these new expressions. Marcus, I admire hugely what you're doing at St Bart's. We must talk again, because just as the problems facing our two churches are rather similar, I wonder if some of the solutions might be as well, if there are solutions. But me, Marcus Walker... Thank you very much indeed for joining me.